We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. I'd like you to look at Mark in chapter 1 here. And what we're going to look at is at the temptation of Christ. Let me give you pictures that have been throughout the years on this oft-depicted aspect of the ministry of Christ. Some of these going back hundreds of years. Those are just some that you can always find renditions of the temptation of Jesus. Let me tell you why this is such an important thing in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. The temptation always follows the baptism of Christ, always. The baptism of Christ was the divine qualification of Jesus to be the Messiah. God spoke, the Spirit descended, John the Baptist, the leading Old Testament prophet, pointed. Old Testament, Father, Spirit to the Son. This is my beloved Son. This is the King, and He is the perfect man, in Him I am well pleased. So God spoke. He is divinely qualified to be the Messiah. The temptation shows that He is morally qualified to that divine title, that he is tempted, and he is the antitype of Adam. Adam is tempted in the garden. Christ is tempted in the wilderness. Adam sins, and in Adam's fall, the Puritans would say, we sinned all. Through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So Adam carried the race down with him as our federal head. But in Christ, you have what is called the last Adam. You have another Adam, not merely a second Adam, but the last Adam. You have another federal representative of the human race. And whereas Adam fell, Christ succeeded and he victored and his victory is ours. That's why if you were reading your Bible, if you were Spock, all right? Not Mark and Mindy, but if you're Spock and you're the rational Vulcan and you're reading your Bible, you would stop and say, Captain, something is interesting here. In the first of the Bible, we saw humanity lost to Satan, become a child of Satan because their federal head, the head of their race, the one from whence they all came fell and they fell with him. And yet I continue on and I see it again. It happens again, a temptation. Whereas Adam had the, and Eve had the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, here you have turned these stones into bread, throw yourself down from the temple, and I'll give you all these things that you see. Same things. He lost, he won, and as a result, all who are in him will now live eternally in victory. His victory is their victory. Amen. And so, that's why the temptation of Christ always follows the baptism. It is the proof that this person is most indeed the Messiah of God. And as a result, it is the poster of Jesus' life. If you're going to do a book on Christ and you want a picture for the cover, you need to put the temptation. Because the temptation most depicts what is called the meta-narrative. Is that a new word to you? The narrative are simply the events that sequentially follow in his life. The meta-narrative is the plot of God of the story. 
that it's not merely sequential events in the life of a man. It is the Redeemer of God who is given to face down Satan and to defeat Satan, that Satan's own can be released and transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And so it is the poster. If you're going to do a book or a movie on Jesus, you take the temptation. And whenever I know what a guy thinks of the temptation, I know that he understands the ministry of the life of Christ, the meta-narrative. In other words, Genesis 3, the seed of woman will crush the serpent's head. The serpent will wound his heel. That's the beginning of the story. Christ is coming to defeat the serpent. Revelation 20, all the way at the end of your Bible, he cast into the lake of fire the devil and his angels and all who follow him. The beginning, the end of the meta-narrative. This is what God is doing. A good picture of it is David and Goliath. You have two men representing two peoples, the people of God and the people of Satan that oppose him. They go at it in one battle, just the two of them. Winner takes all. Are you with me? Winner takes all. And so with Christ and Satan, they're going to go at it. Winner takes all. I don't want to make you nervous, but as we study the temptation and Christ's sins, we're all going to hell. Let's continue. Okay. <laughs> and so this is David and Goliath, the antitype. In other words, in the temptation, the gauntlet is cast. It's Christ saying to Satan, I know who you are. Satan saying to Christ, I know who you are. Something interesting is that in the ministry of Jesus, there's only two people that are always hip to what's happening. One is Satan and one is Jesus. Do you know that? Everybody else is kind of in the dark. Even Mary would hide these things in her heart, uh, pondering them as to what they meant. Satan looks at Jesus and says, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, holy one of God. You have come to destroy us. Satan knows who he is. Christ, whenever he is betrayed by Judas, when he is rejected by the Sanhedrin, whenever he is uh, arrested by Rome, they come to get him. What does Christ say? He doesn't say, Judas is coming, the Sanhedrin is coming, Rome is coming. He says, the God of this world, the prince of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. That's why, if you ever watched the great Christian movie by Mel Gibson, the, the Passion of the Christ, have you ever seen that? It's really, it's well done. And it's interesting, but the Satan figure in that movie, you can't tell if it's a guy or a girl, and no one ever sees him. Only Christ sees him. He never moves. He just moves through the air. And no one knows who he is except Jesus. And whenever he appears, Satan will lock eyes on Christ. And Christ will look at him. 
And only they know what is going on. Because that's what the, the drama of the life of Christ is. But to those who are in the know, they're able to back up and to recognize this is not just a series of events. This is God and Satan and man is the, uh, is the spoil. Amen? That's the temptation. Uh, could I preach this on the college campus? Could I preach this in Congress? Could I preach this to CNN? Canaanite News Network. I don't think I could. <laughs> could I preach this on the floor of the United Nations? I could not. Have you ever had a class in college on the life of Christ that put you to sleep? The reason was because they wouldn't look at the supernatural. They only looked at Schweitzer's quest for the historical Jesus but they never would look at the supernatural. Secular, humanistic, atheistic man, of which those three are synonyms, they only look at a closed system of natural causes. Math, mechanics, matter, that's all that they look at. But they can't look at meaning. They can't look at the meta narrative. Only God can tell you that. And so... There is no room in secular humanism for a meta-narrative, for something meta above the narrative. There's no place for the supernatural. And yet in the Bible, you move between the worlds as easily as you can be. You begin with the supernatural. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Natural supernatural, and he's in charge. And we'll just move between those two worlds. And as you're a Christian, you read the document and you move between them. And at the very end, uh, they shall reign forever in new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. And so the Bible begins and ends with the supernatural. You dig? That's who we are. That's who we are. We are a people completely distinct from everybody else right now on planet earth and for sure in our secular humanistic culture. They know what's happening. They don't know why. We do because we're smarter than everybody else. <laughs> no, because we're enlightened by the grace of God as to what's happening. And so with that in mind, in verse 12, it says, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. That word is a very important word. The word impelled is the word drove. And it is used for Christ driving the demons out. He is being impelled. Very important. Why? Because he doesn't naturally normally want to go there. You don't naturally go into a desert with no food, no water, nothing but the devil for 40 days. That's not normal. It's not natural. It's not normal for you and I, and it's not normal for him. Why? Because he's one of us. He's just like us, yet from sin apart. And so the reason he is in the desert is not because he likes going there. 
but because he completely submits to the will of God. If it be, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but thine be done. If you're the Son of God, take yourself down from the cross. He wouldn't. He can't because we can't. And he became like us. And so the text begins with the Son of God submitting himself to a very unpleasant thing. Well, and it's for 40 days in verse 13. I don't know why, but 40 in the Bible is the number of judgment. Uh, 40 days for a flood, 40 days Israel in the wilderness, 40 days Moses on Sinai, 40 days Christ in the wilderness. Because Christ is being tested. Are you indeed the Son of God? We've got to see this. And so we're going to look at Christ. Mark isn't going to spend a lot of time on it. Matthew, Luke will. Mark won't. Mark is doing with pragmatics. Rome only wanted to know, are we backing a winner? And he lets you know yes. But to show you what took place, uh, go ahead and take a look at Matthew with me. Go back to your left. Matthew chapter 4. And I'm going to tell you why it's important to study the uh, temptation. Because you learn something about sin. And you learn something about Satan. And you learn something about victory. About how the perfect man dealt with Satan. And here's the key of the temptations. He's always offering Christ a very valid need. He's meeting a very valid need in a very invalid way. And that's the brilliance of Satan. To meet a very valid longing in us and a very wrong means. So we'll watch sin, we'll watch Satan, and we'll watch Christ. It's worthy of our study. The first temptation is in um, chapter 4 of, of Matthew, in verse 3, or verse 2, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he became hungry. Fasting is a hard thing. Jim Hill once told me it was the worst three hours of his life. <laughs> and so he's going to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. In verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, and I am told by those in the know that the word if has the idea of since. Not maybe you are, maybe you aren't. You are, and since you are, if you are the Son of God, then command that these stones become bread. The first temptation is over a basic physical need that we all have, and it's physical life. Every six hours, we go to the trough like little piggies. And God has to take care of us every six hours. Eve saw the tree was good for food. That was the temptation. Food. Abraham, the first temptation in uh, Genesis 13 of Abraham. There was a famine in the land. He went down to Egypt. He got scared about his physical life said to his wife, you better lie, say that you're my sister. The 12, 
began to discuss among themselves. They had brought no bread. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of your heart of hypocrisy. They said, yeah, great. Anybody have any bread? Because that's their major concern. Israel in the wilderness became concerned. Where are we to find bread that we may eat? Would you agree that most of us, all of us, are desperately obsessed with our physical continuity, our pleasure, our lack of pain, even the assurance in future days that there will be no disturbance in the force, but I'll have these things. Think about it just a second. In the Lord's Prayer, would your prayer have been weighted the same as his? between the spiritual and the physical. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today I need some daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses. I need to forgive those who trespass me. And don't lead me into temptation. Deliver me from evil. When you look at that prayer, how much of it is spiritual and how much of it is physical? It's daily bread. That's all. Everything else is spiritual. How do our prayers go? Give me, give me, give me. Help me, help me, help me. We're desperately concerned with our food and our covering every six hours. He'd better show up. And so the temptation here is not to eat but to eat now in the way not that God has ordained you to eat. In the terms of the incarnation, Jesus became like his brethren in all things. You and I can't turn stones into bread. Jesus can't turn stones into bread. You and I, no miracle that he does benefits himself. He will only do a miracle to benefit others. And if he uses his divinity to escape the parameters of his humanity, he no longer can be Savior. God cannot save what God does not become. He has to provide us a righteousness we don't have, and it has to be a human righteousness. If he fails to be human, he cannot be the provider of our righteousness. And so we can't turn stones into bread. He can't turn stones into bread. Could he turn stones into bread? Yes, but he can't because we can't. Uh, the temptation is don't humble yourself by becoming like these little dung beetles. That's how Satan sees us, I think. These little gerbils, they don't love you. There's no use you're going through this for them. They don't care. Take bread now. Don't go through the humiliation of being like unto your brethren in all things, who though being in the form of God would not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but empty himself, taking the form of a bondservant made in the likeness of men. Don't do that. Jesus, they don't care that you do this. 
They will mock your name. Go ahead and be the son of God and go around the incarnation. Go around the crucifixion. Eat now. Don't wait on them. When I was at North Texas, we had a coach named Hayden Fry that came from SMU. And the first, he came in 1973. First guy that he signed was the best quarterback in Texas from Rockwall, Texas. Hayden Fry Jr. was Zach Fry. Signed his son, and he was good. I don't know why with me he needed an all-state quarterback, <laughs> but he did. Uh, actually, I was graduating, and he signed Zach Fry. And we all wondered, how can you be the begotten son of the coach and at the same time be an eagle? How can you have coachness and egolicity? in one person. How can you unite the father and the servants into one person? And so we watched him to see if there was, he ended up, I think, a co-captain that year. He was really good. And we watched him. If ever he used his relationship to his father to get out of being what he became, he was immediately eliminated from leadership. If when we ran wind sprints, he said, I'm the coach's son, I'm not going to run these. He's dead. He can't be a leader now. If ever he said, I'm not going to eat the Kerr Hall venue, the mystery meat, I'm going to Montecito and have a steak. If he does that, he's done. He's no longer captain. If he got tired of riding in coach and said, I'm going to first class, he immediately is canceled. You know what? Not one time would he use what he became. No, not one time would he use what he was to escape what he became. Is that a good illustration? That was the terms of the incarnation. And so you get to become one of them. And the temptation is not just eat, but eat now. Do not wait on God to fulfill a valid need in his plan. Assert yourself and fly independent from the incarnation and have immediate um, recompense to your needs right now. You don't have to trust God. Satan would have said to him, I'm the fan of man. I'll give you what you want right now. With Satan, you don't have to trust. You don't have to pray. You don't have to wait. I'll give it to you right now. Then you go to hell, but I'll give it to you right now. You know what his response was? How many of you, if you had to deal with Satan one-on-one, -on -one, could handle him by your scripture memory from the book of Deuteronomy? But Jesus could. He went to Deuteronomy 8, where God said to Israel, I let you be hungry in the wilderness, and I fed you in a way which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. 
Y'all know what the word manna means in Hebrew? It means what is it? I'm going to give you something you have no idea where it comes from. Quote, to make you understand that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God said, I'm going to put you in a place and I'm going to back you into a corner. And your reason and your talent is going to be no avail to you. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust my word. And I'm going to do something that you have no concept of. Matter of fact, I'm going to take you, have you take a pot of it, fill it with manna, and put it in the temple for the rest of your days to remember what I can do. To make you understand, man does not live by bread alone. But you're going to have to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When you go through college and high school, is what you are taught, is this it? I'm going to make you learn that your talent and your ability and your ability to produce and provide is not enough. If you're going to make it, you're going to have to trust in your knowledge of God and the Bible and rely upon it. Were y'all taught that through high school? You high schoolers with me? Wave your hand. Let me know. Okay. Eh, good old Pop-Tarts. Yeah. Do they need to hear this message? Your ability to go through life, make money, get a job, make a career. And if you don't know God, you ain't got a cut dog's chance. You're a dead man walking. Old people. <laughs> All right. Let me ask you something. Is it possible to go through school, get your degree, get your job, make your money, buy your house, have your car, and completely screw your life up forever? Again. Okay. Do you wish you were in this church 40 years ago to hear this? Now, this is the message. You know, one time I was at a North Texas graduation and they had a guy get up and gave the uh, graduation message. Never forget this. He went up, had his gown on. He said, men and women, we have let y'all learn knowledge, get you a degree, to get you a job, start you a career get you a family, get you a house. But I want you to know, if you cannot make a moral decision independently, you're not going to last five minutes. Thank you. And he walked off. I think somebody went. <laughs> Graduation message took about six minutes. He said, you can have everything that we're giving you, if you can't make an independent moral decision, you're a dead man. He walked off. And I asked somebody, I said, what was that? He said he just lost his kid through drugs. His kid overdosed. Big, fine, strong, scholarship kid, got his degree, dead. Because he could not say no to drugs. 
He screwed it up for 15 minutes. We had a guy in our church years ago, God loving, was a Dallas Cowboy, one of the best played for him. When he graduated, graduated. When he retired, he had eight million cash in the bank. And back in them days, that was a lot of money. Had a gorgeous wife, was gonna go and do what he loved the most, and that was go coach high school football. Before he left, went to a party. They got to cooking up some black, black tar heroin. Cooked it up in a dang sink. Heroin, morphine, is meant to sedate you, and if you do it enough, it stops your heart and you die. That's why when you get operated on, your anesthesiologist has put about nine years of schooling behind him to be able to administer that. They make it up in the sink. He makes a decision. Decision lasts five minutes, and he is dead. Now, somebody else can marry his gorgeous wife, go to his house, spend his money, because he could not make an independent moral decision. And so, Satan says, I'll make the decision for you. You got it now. Jesus said, no, I will eat when God tells me to eat. You dig? All right. We continue in chapter 4 and verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle. Don't worry as to how this happened. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot of metaphysics. We don't need to know it. He just simply says they go up to the top of the temple where the temple is now abuzz with the baptism of Christ, the message of John the Baptist, the spirit that descended. Everybody is talking about Messiah. Satan takes him to the pinnacle. He says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And he goes here to Psalm 91. Does Satan know his Bible? Yes, he does. He will, give, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Question, will Christ someday reign in the temple in Jerusalem? Yes or no? Yes. Will he descend from heaven? Yes. Will the angels bear him up? Yes. Will he reign from Jerusalem over all the earth? Yes. What was Satan offering him? Exactly what God offered him. But he's offering it to him now. You don't have to go through any more of the incarnation. No more hunger. No more thirst. No more having to memorize Scripture when you are the Word of God. No more having to... to Live down here with the gerbils. You can now be the eagle, the lion, and no more cross. No more cross. You can have it right now. Just quit saying, not my will, but thine be done. 
Uh, in verse 6, he will command his angels concerning you. That is a quote from Psalm 91. Now, I want you to do something. Uh, you just stay right here, and I'll, I'll read to you from Psalm 91, and you tell me if you see a difference. You ready? Psalm 91. He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Did you see something change? Look close at your Matthew 4. Psalm 91. He will give his angels charge concerning you. Is that there? Yes, it is. The next phrase, to guard you in all your ways. What happened to that phrase? Satan left it out. Because Psalm 91 says, God will take care of you as you go through life. Satan removed it. He made it the prosperity gospel. You name it and you can claim it. God will give you whatever you want right now. All you've got to do is do what you want. Instead of God testing you, you can test God. And so, Christ, take your exaltation right now. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to go to Gethsemane. You don't have to be rejected and tried and found guilty and go through all of this. I'll give it to you right now for nothing. Well, he drops that term out. Jesus comes back and simply says, it is also written. You see that in verse 7? Never argue with an omniscient person who calls himself the Word of God. Jesus says, yes, and it's also written. Deuteronomy 8. You shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Meaning, God tests us. We don't test God. He will take care of us in all of our ways. It doesn't mean that I get to quit my job and demand that he provide for me. It doesn't mean that I get to stop reading and he gets to make me wise. We had uh, a woman at the church that I formerly was at years ago, and she had diabetes. And she got tired of having diabetes. So she figured she would trust God, and she would go get a motel room, and she would lock herself in, and she would wait for God to heal her. Anybody want to guess how this narrative ends? They found her by the cadaver dogs. She died because she put God to a foolish test. Y'all know what a snake handler is? That's a snake handler. I'm going to put God to a foolish test. And so, interesting point. You ready? The first temptation is with man's natural weakness. I need food. 
Jesus said no. He quoted the Bible. I'm going to trust God. Temptation two. So you believe the Bible? You like Bible? You believe trusting God? God says, throw yourself off. Can Satan use your weakness? Can Satan use your strength? Satan can use the flesh, and he can use our pride. So, the lust of the flesh didn't work. The pride of life didn't work. All that's left is the lust of the eyes. We continue. In verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain. We're not just going to look down to Israel and the temple. We're going to look to the entire world and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Does the Bible say that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ? Does it say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess? Yes. So Satan is offering him, just like with food, just like with exaltation, he is offering him what God says he will give him, a very valid need. But he offers it to him right now. You don't have to go through the rejection. You don't have to go through temptation. You don't have to go through Gethsemane. You don't have to weep, as it were, great drops of blood. You can have it all right now. Right now. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, I don't know who did it. They may have been a little crazy, but they were good. But in the, the one scene where Christ is being scourged, did y'all see that movie? It, I looked around and it stopped the entire theater. Nobody was moving at seeing enacted what happened, watching it. And as that scourging is taking place and they are beating Christ right to the limit of his life, all of a sudden, Satan appears. He never moves, he just floats. And he moves through and Christ in his bloody eyes Look at him, and Satan locks in on him. And Satan is holding something in his arms. And what it is, it's a baby. It's Satan's child. It's you. It's man. I remember as I'm watching it, Teresa's got the popcorn. And I'm going, whoa, because I see what's coming. And sure enough, they had the depiction of Satan holding his child, mankind. And that little baby turns and beholds this most sublime of acts of the Son of God dying for what he did. And the little baby has this look on his face that is akin to Chucky. It's this demonic smirk and scorn and holding Christ in contempt 
and Satan just shows him, this is who you're dying for. This is what they think of you. This is what they're going to do to you, to your people. He hates you. He loathes you. Your very existence is contemptible to this baby. Not this college grad. This one conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. Have y'all had kids and figured out something's wrong with this child? They're conceived in sin. Something's wrong. It's our nature. We are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And he just shows him. And Christ is down to the, just the naked, bare truth of will he obey God to the point of death. It's powerful. And so he says to Christ, these things have been given to me. The book of Luke inserts a deal to where the devil says, all these kingdoms have been handed over to me. That is a quote from the book of Daniel. God says, I put down one and I raise up another, that all authority is his. Satan takes that quote and makes it true of him. Now, stay with me just a second. A lot of times people will come to me and they will say, I see here this circle that God is sovereign over all things. Yes, I see here this circle, however, that Satan is called the God of this world. And man can do things uh, with culpability that bring about the wrath of God or the pleasure of God. They look like they're two conflicting circles of God's sovereignty and of man's and of Satan's freedom. How do you put those together? And I say to them, don't make two circles next to each other. Make a big circle and then make a little circle within it. That's the way you see them. Is that Satan says of the Antichrist that uh, in Revelation 13, that the Antichrist gets his authority from the dragon. He gives it to him. Uh, Satan makes that quotation in Luke that is attributed to God, and he applies it to himself, that I can bestow authority over whomever I want to. The Bible says that Satan has authority. Did Satan want a piece of Job? What did he have to do to get it? Had to ask God. Satan has relative authority. Satan has relative power. It's very real. It can bring about great wickedness. A man can bring about great pain. It's very real. But over and around it is the sovereignty of God that Satan can do what God allows him. Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you men like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But you, after you have fallen, will strengthen your brothers. All things work together for good to those who love God and called according to his purpose. So we can have our cake and eat it too. I can trust 
that God is in complete control, but what happened does not please him. He can be displeased. He cannot be perplexed. And so Satan, once again, leaves out theology. He will use Scripture to his own avail. And so Christ's answer in verse 10, Go, Satan, meaning I'm moving on, get behind me. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Christ's answer is simply on three occasions, no. I will trust the word of God. I will trust the love of God. And I will obey him and I'll wait on him. I will eat when he wants me to eat. I will rule when he wants me to rule. And I will be sovereign over all when he wants me to be sovereign over all. Mordecai said to Haman, fall down in worship? No. Daniel was told, do not pray. No. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, worship the idol. No. Peter and John, preach no more in the name of Jesus. No. That's how easy it is. God has spoken. I submit to it. I may not have all these pleasurable things happen to me. Remember when he turned the water into wine? And the guy said to the head waiter, you know, or the head waiter came to, no. Yeah, the, uh, forget it. It's real good though, okay. Yeah, they, they test, yeah, the they, head waiter tastes the wine and he says to the, uh, somebody or another, he says, you know, every man serves the best wine first and then that which is poorer You've waited to the end to serve the best. One theologian said that's how God and Satan work. Satan, you serve the best wine first. You give the pleasures of sin that are but for a season. You serve the best wine first. And then, Mogan David 2020, Mad Dog 40. Once your taste buds are completely anesthetized and you can't tell the difference between wine and turpentine, once you have had the pleasures of sin, now it's the wage of sin. It's payday. Did y'all's daddy ever say to you, time to pay the piper, pay the fiddler? You enjoyed the dance. Now it's payday. And so every man serves the good wine and then that which is poorer. You, you've waited till the end to serve the best. Christ asks you to take the cross and then the crown. Trust me. Trust me. What's the application here? Jesus won. Secondly, we're going to win. Amen. We're going to win. Thirdly, we can win. How? Putting your eyes on Jesus. Is Satan very aware of your fallen heart and flesh? Does Satan know who you are? He does. God says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? Satan said, yes, I have. 
I know exactly who he is. I know exactly where he is. Yes, I know him. So he knows when you're hungry. He knows when there's a longing in you to be elevated. He knows when you're impatient. Satan knows your body. Be very aware of what sin is. It's meeting a valid need in an invalid way. That's the brilliance of the devil. He's the fan of man. I'll give you whatever you want. Y'all ever watch the great Christian narrative, Pinocchio? Y'all remember Pinocchio? They human traffic those little boys. They take them to Pleasure Island where there's no voices from the outside. When we get the little boys all by themselves, And then there's no adults around them to confuse the issues. And we take them to Pleasure Island. And now you can do, little boys and girls, whatever you want to. You can smoke it. You can drink it. You can tear it up. You can smash it. Anything. There's no one to challenge you. There's no adults. There's no school. There's no books. There's no nothing. All there is, is your sovereign pleasure. It's called Pleasure Island. It's yours. And so those kids enjoy it until all of a sudden they start growing tails and ears and they become animals and they put them in the mines and human trafficking takes place. And so I'll let you do whatever you want to do, but the end's coming and you're going to become my slaves. So be aware of your bodies. You know how in, uh, in Alaska, how you catch a, a marauding wolf? You take a knife, sharpen it like a razor, stick it in an animal, let the blood freeze, stick it in there again, let the blood freeze, stick it in there again, let the blood freeze, stick it in there, let the blood freeze. Build up a quarter inch of blood, frozen blood, Put it in a bucket of water, let it freeze where it will not move. Leave it out. The wolf smells it. The wolf licks it and keeps licking it until his tongue becomes so cold he can't feel. And then he licks through the blood. And the more he licks, the more blood he gets and the faster he licks until finally he severs his tongue. And then he starts swallowing his own blood. And he can't tell that he is cannibalizing himself and you will find the wolf dead in his own blood. God bless you this day. Let's continue. <laughs> and so that's the way you catch a human. Let him lick the knife. When I was, y'all got time? We got nothing to go home for. There's a plague out there, you know. <laughs> when I was at Dallas Seminary, we had a Guy came in as president after a while. Y'all ever heard of Chuck Swindoll? He was talking to the seminary, all of us young studs. All right. I was a graduate at the time, but he's talking to the young guys. And he said, out in California, there was this guy that was climbing in a, a mountain range in the Sierras. He got to pull himself up on this rock. And he looked up 
And here's about a six-foot timber rattler looking right at him with a head about that big, coiled up, and he just froze. I mean, that rattler's got him in his sights, and the rattler goes for him, and he just misses him, and he catches his fangs in the guy's parka, and then he can't get them loose. And so the rattler wraps its body around his head, and he's trying to get loose, and the guy reaches back, and he grabs the rattler, and he just puts the death grip on that thing because he can't get him loose. And he said he could feel the hot venom coming down his neck from that timber rattler. And he just puts the death grip and he gets to leaning backward, all right? And he and the rattler start rolling down the hill. This is a real bad day, all right? He starts rolling down the hill with his rattler, trying to get at him. And all he can do it's just put the death grip on that rattler. And finally, the rattler's convulsing and he just stops. And he's dead. And he pries those fangs loose from his parka. And he's so scared that he said tetany had set in. He couldn't turn the rattler loose. He just walks down the mountain <laughs> with his rattler, you know. And I remember Swindoll looking at them, all the young pastors. He said, there's some of y'all right now that you can feel the hot venom of the devil on your neck. That you're playing around with something that you shouldn't. And it's close. Good illustration. So know who you are, Pinocchio and that you're just a step away from an abyss. Walk scared, confident in God, but not in you. Number two, know your Bible, not just what it says, but what it means. Know how to reconcile Psalm 91 with Deuteronomy chapter eight. Number three, wait on God. Just wait on him. God will not sacrifice the best on the altar of the good. Trust him. How long? As long as it takes. Walk in obedience. You ever sung this? Nearer, my God, to thee. Nearer to thee. Even though it be a cross that raiseth me, Still, all my song shall be nearer, my God, to thee, as long as it takes. Are we glad Jesus waited? Y'all got a communion cup? Father in heaven, for just a few minutes, we'll stop before we head off realizing how special we are. We know what's happening. We know what you're doing. We know who's going to win. We know that the seed of woman will crush the serpent's head. We know that we will 
put Satan underneath our feet as Christ's co-heirs. We know that in this world, there is something above it that is more big and more sublime than anything the world is willing to acknowledge. Thank you. Thank you for the providence of God who has opened our eyes. And thank you that in contrast to Adam, that where we were all lost, that in the last Adam, we can be saved. And so we bless you and we thank you. In your precious name.